guys, it's Ali and Colin from Outlaw Bows. Hey everyone. Um, make sure you jump over to Facebook and have a look at Outlaw Bows or Instagram at Outlaw underscore Bows mm-hmm. and on YouTube as Outlaw Bows. Um, last week we talked about long bows and how they're made and how you make them and a little bit of the history. Yep, that's right. Prior to that though, we had tried to record the episode a couple times and due to technical difficulties it didn't quite work and so it was a bit late. But in the ones that we record, like we tried to record and weren't released, you caught, you talked quite heavily about the Mary Rose and the history about the Mary Rose. And that's mm-hmm. always been something that I learnt about that before I learnt about other styles of bows. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to talk about that one first and just sort of catch that up onto last week's podcast. Yeah. Make sure it's not forgotten because it is a very integral part in bow making history, especially mm. for the English longbow. That's right. Um, so can you tell us the history of the Mary Rose? What is the Mary Rose? Why is it important? And why are the artefacts to this day still so important? So the Mary Rose was one of Henry VIII's naval ships. Uh, it was commissioned in 1506 and it was had its first voyage in 1511. And it was used in its, navy, uh, in its lifetime, in its service lifetime, it was used in Henry VIII's navy uh, to, as a defence ship around ports in England and in 1545 it actually sank off the coast of Portsmouth um, not far from shore only a couple of miles offshore and that was in defense of the French fleet attacking England and what happened was the ship sank but because of the nature of the bottom in the English Channel um, what happened was it was buried and the mud on the bottom actually preserved a lot of the artifacts within the ship so there was over 19,000 different artefacts were brought up when the ship was raised itself and it was salvaged in the 1980s and they actually managed to get a lot of uh, a, a good look into the life of uh, the Tudor period and you know things that you could you know it, even everyday items as well as all the military you know weapons and, and armor and things like that so what happened was on the ship there was cases of uh, longbows I was just going to say, sorry. Have you seen, um, I think it's on Instagram and Facebook that I follow them. It's like the the Boneyard of Alaska or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's these archaeologists and they had some students the other week um, helping them out. And it's they're finding all these different artifacts from all different time periods that have been buried in the snow and mm-hmm. um, the snow's melting. So they're finding it. Yeah. And But they're finding like the heads of arrows because it all rots away. That's right. When it was in salt water, all the arrowheads disappeared, but under freshwater ice, the arrowheads are preserved. So. But I, the, the timber and the Mary Rose, like that's, yeah, that's why it's so important. That's right. The timber pieces were all preserved in the arrows and the bows as well. Because everywhere else it would rot away, or any other conditions. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So because of that mud, we've got all these artifacts that are still, um, still very much usable they even managed to brace a couple of the bows and actually test them some of them to destruction unfortunately but they did manage to test a couple of them down to see what the draw weights were like Um, and even after having been on the bottom of the ocean for 400 years they were still quite substantial goes to say about the craftsmanship of the day that's right a well-tilled bow lasts a long time but so your one of your bows i don't know if it was in the podcast that we uploaded or if it was one of the ones we tried to make we talked about um the mary rose bow that you have to the same dimensions yeah so i have a copy of one of the bows i can't remember the exact artifact number at the moment 
but I do have an exact copy of one of those bows. So the, when the bows were brought up, they were all measured and catalogued. Um, Robert Hardy, the late Robert Hardy, had a, a big part in doing that because he was quite a, a big advocate for the longbow and its use. And um, those measurements are available in Weapons of War. And I managed to obtain measurements for one of the bows that suited to the, a stave that I had, so I decided to recreate it. And that bow is 150 pounds at 30 inches. It's a big bow. It like, is it a big is, bow. It's thick and yeah. it's long. Like that one's one of the bigger, um, the bigger bows that was on the boat. But through recreations of different uh, different artifact numbers that came out, we've got an average sort of range from bows on the ship from 70 pounds all the way up to two nearly 200 pounds or over 200 pounds, depending on the piece of wood that they were made from the quality of the wood at the time. Who's shooting a 70 pound bow back then? Is that is that older kids or is it women? 70 pound bows back back in that period, I believe would have been younger people. So anywhere from around 10, 12 up to early teenagers, 13, 14 would have been using that kind of weight because they started shooting when they were very, very young and conditioning to the shooting uh, would have got them used to using those kind of weights quite quickly. It's like anything, isn't it? You practice... That's right. The more the more you practice it, the more you you learn the technique and build up muscle memory for doing that repetitive motion. So, what's that analogy? If you were if you pick up a calf every day, by the end of the year you'll be able to pick up a bull. Yeah, like something like that. Yeah, it's it's a good it's um, like I don't know how it actually. It, it's just a good theory, a good a good analogy rather. That's right. Um, so I guess yeah, if you're twelve and you're picking up bows, yeah. or if you're younger and you're picking up bows, I guess you're going to be shooting much heavier weights than the average person. They this like in this day and age at the same age would you have had women shooting bows back then i don't know i don't believe so yeah okay i'm sure that they wouldn't have been unfamiliar with them Mm -hmm. Uh, they would have seen you know husbands and children using them so i don't think they would have been unfamiliar with them but to my knowledge the the law was only the men had to practice by law Mm -hmm. Um, i think women shooting may have been something that was done possibly to harvest food so yeah, I, I'm not sure about women shooting and, and what their role with the longbow would have been. What's the difference between a longbow and a warbow? The longbow, modern distinguishing fact is basically the draw weight now. So the English Warbow Society was founded after Mary Rose's ship was brought up in the 80s. The English Warbow Society was founded in the ni- early 90s and their goal was to recreate the bows and learn as much about their manufacture and also their use and the history behind them. They set down a standard of 75 pounds at 32 inches was then in a war bow range and that was based on one of the smaller bows that came off the boat. Then you move up into a lot heavier weights of bows, over 100 pounds, they're very much for military use and capable of putting arrows you know, through lighter armor and and very much used for the warbow for killing people. Yeah, the warbows themselves. But the distinguishing facts now between what I how I distinguish a warbow to a longbow is how the longbow uh, how the bow itself is tilted, uh, and by tilted I mean the shape it takes when it's braced and also then when it's drawn. So, um, so the English longbows or English warbow have a very smooth curve and very slightly whipped tiller and by whipped tiller I mean the tips bend very slightly more than what the handle does so even though the handle 
uh, is slightly stiffer than what the tip section is, you still do get bend in the handle and you can feel it in your hand when you draw these bows later in the draw, um, in the draw length, the, the handle does flex. Whereas with a Victorian target bow or into modern longbows now, you have this very stiff, rigid handle section and only bending limbs outside that. And what happens with a bow that's got more length of it bending to store energy is it's then slightly better to transfer that energy. So an, a bow that's made in the war bow style where the whole bow bends is going to transfer arrow in uh, energy into a heavier arrow better, which is going to then do more damage at the receiving end. It's surprised how much your engineering degree has helped you make bows. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very interesting how they both sort of intertwine and my understanding of things goes but it's quite good um it's far more complex than i would have ever imagined and it's even more interesting that hundreds and hundreds of years ago that people were you know figuring out what works and what doesn't and why it works and maybe not to the same understanding that we have these days but it is very impressive so on the last podcast, we talked about the different types of longbows. Mm -hmm. what, is, what are the distinguishing factors for a Mary Rose longbow? So the Mary Rose longbows, of the 137 bows, full bows that came up, there was majority of them were U-timber. So we talked about U-timber in the pre in previous podcast. There's two bows that were actually also made of uh, witch elm. So witch elms are an, a species of elm. Uh, tree that grows over in Europe and which all makes very good bows but there's only two of those that came up on the ship and those have since sort of disappeared and become um, a little bit null and void now but they were there and they're very interesting but all of the bows that came up have some distinguishing features they have that full bend through um, to store more energy and from knock to knock yeah from, from one knock to the other knock they have a nice curve, smooth curve when they're drawn and have that that whip tiller, that slightly whip tiller. Um, they're all, as far as we know, fitted with a horn knock on both ends to reinforce the tips where the string uh, fits onto the bow. And they use a cow horn knock as reinforcement basically to strengthen that up in compression because you is quite a soft timber. And when you get 150 pounds of pressure on that small area, it's likely to crack. So they reinforce it with cow horns. And then between the knocks, you obviously need bowstrings. So the bowstrings on the Mary Rose bows were made out of linen fibres, so flax fibres, um, or modern spun spun linen. And flax, like the plant. Like the plant, yeah. Okay. So the linen thread comes from flax. Yeah. The flax strings, um, and they were made in a Flemish twist style. So um, the twist and reverse cross that I talked about. Um, in one of the other podcasts so I'll, I'll do a YouTube video on that and how the Flemish twist strings are made but likely all fitted with Flemish twist strings and they were tied with either a single loop and a bowyer's knot or a smaller loop uh, on the bottom knock and a larger loop on the top and the bottom loop actually formed the smaller bottom loop actually forms a small slip knot um, which is then locked onto the bow permanently so you don't lose your string is the Mary Rose, like, are they the only artifacts we have for English longbows that, like, the English war bows? Or are yeah. they or are the only ones or the main ones? The Mary Rose bows are the only look into longbows in that period other than artworks. They're the only actual artifacts that we have um, for that period. It's sort of the back end of the medieval period. Makes you wonder how much you lose through, like, 
just nature and things breaking down mm. where you have these you know beautiful scenarios of you know the mud preserved all this and you know there's so many other um, situations in history where artifacts are preserved very in a very lucky way mm, actually wonder right. how much you've lost in history yeah <laughs> without it. hundreds millions of items probably have been lost is there anything else you wanted to talk about with the Mary Rose and its impact on longbows these days? So with the bow, we obviously have an arrow. So you need an arrow to go with the bow. And the Mary Rose brought up 9,000, uh, 9,500 arrows came up in chests off the ship. And a lot of them were very well preserved. The, the tips weren't well preserved, but the shafts remained intact and the feathers had rotted away mostly. But some of the other things on the shaft had remained and we got a good look at those and can reverse engineer them. So the arrow shafts, there's five different profiles of shaft on uh, the, out of the arrows that came up on the ship. So there's bobtailed is the most common. They were the biggest percentage of um, the arrows that came up, that shaft profile. So bobtailed shafts are a half inch at the socket and they taper down to a thinner knock end. So you get more forward of center more mass at the front of the shaft and less at the back of the shaft and there was parallel which is obviously like a lot of the arrows we see these days they're just parallel shafts um, chested shafts are another one that are indicative with long range shooting on flight shooting so you have a smaller back end and the stiffest portion of the arrow the thickest portion of the arrow is moved to about the two-third point back from the point of the arrow and that is where you need the stiffness most for long distance shooting um, and then that's again similar with the next one, which is a barrel shaft. So barrel shafts look like the barrel. They have a thin knock end, a thin point end, and a swell in the center to cope with the, uh, the flex and the stiffness that you need. And the last one is a saddle profile, and that's the most uh, interesting of all of them to me. A saddle profile has that half-inch socket, but then has... Uh, features like a chested shaft where that stiff point has been moved to the back end it's quite different what were all the arrows made of were they made of different things because they're different arrows there's no specific uh, relationship between the shaft profile and the timber that the arrows were used it was all mixed um, but the most common timbers that the shafts were made of were the ash english ash or uh, black poplar aspen there's also some lime english lime wood uh, in in the mix as well uh, which is a very stiff but light timber and the arrows total weight sort of ranged around that 900 to a thousand grains uh, or about 60 grams 65 grams when they're finished so quite stout arrows and definitely um designed to do damage were they all designed for warfare or were they designed for like what some of them were for hunting so that when we got, when they got somewhere else that they could then hunt or it, it didn't matter being that it was a navy ship, it was specifically. Oh, that's right. I believe they were specifically used for warfare, so yeah. they were all designed to either do damage on light armor or to injure people. Is this around the same time where you've got Vikings trying to come in, or is that this is afterwards? This is well after, yeah, yeah 600, okay. 600 years after. Oh, don't mind me. <laughs> very, very different time period, but they're still using the same timber because it carried through the generations. Mm. Uh, over that sort of that span of you know six seven eight hundred years they're still using those same woods because you know someone's father that made bows taught his kids to make bows out of that timber and it just carried through um 
Mm, I'm sure the technique, well. the technique would have been very similar too. Well, they are very similar. The Mary Rose bows, the Mary Rose long bows are just very scaled up, very, you know, a lot longer, a lot thicker because they needed that draw weight uh, to do damage in into armour and to get arrows to go further, but they are basically just scaled up versions of the shorter bow, Viking bows. Like I've seen at the Abbey, you yeah. get shot through armour. But it's one of those things, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. If the technique works, why would you keep changing it? Yeah, that's you right. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. That's right. Um, cool. Is that all you have for the Mary Rose? Yeah, I think that's to... a pretty good summation of the, the weapon system that is the, the Mary Rose Longbows. Cool. So. Well, we'll shift gears now and we'll talk a bit more about what you did today and the shoot that you went to today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was out at Chevalon. I don't know the name of the shoot though, so you'll have to tell me. So I went up to the Queensland State Archery Traditional Archery Titles at Chevalon Archery Park. Uh, they're up in uh, Tin Can Bay, up near Gympie. So I went up there for the day and uh, just sort of wanted to showcase my work a little bit and try and sort of get people interested in the the bow making and arrow making and craft side of traditional archery and. Um, I invited Perry Jackson to come up with me and do that and we put on a bit of a display up there on, on some tables and it was really well received. You said you put in a workshop into the raffle. I did. I donated a workshop, a weekend bow making workshop. So that'll give someone an opportunity to come to my workshop over the, the period of a weekend. Um, they can either do a stay if they want to or they can just drive if they're local enough. But the gentleman that won it's in Perigian, so he um, he'll probably drive down uh, each morning, and over that course of the weekend, we'll build a probably a laminated timber longbow. But I'll see if I can uh, sway him into doing something pretty interesting. You said that you had, there was a few people there that knew who you were. Um, was, yeah. Yeah, and there was some other bow makers. Tell me about the people that were up there today. There's a good mix, a good mix of people up there today. There's quite a few young fellow, uh, you know, young people up there, uh, teenagers under ten. Uh, there's a lot of age groups covered, and then into the the thirties and forties, and then into the older guys as well that are still kicking and going good with their shooting. So it was a good mix. But there were some guys up there that are familiar with making bows. There's a lot of people up there that are very unfamiliar with making bows, and they had a lot of really good questions and uh, very interested in all of our stuff. What kind of shooting and what kind of range is up there for like people that are interested in trying to get into traditional bow making um, or learning to, or for anyone that's trying to find a range or a group or looking to take it a bit further, what was the shooting like up there? So the shoot at Chevalon is a 3D style uh, hunting, uh, hunting round. They base it on ABA, so it's bow hunting, but at animal targets. And they shoot anywhere from, I think, 8 metres out to 35 metres is the longest shot that they do at, at Chevalon. And it's quite challenging, some of the shots that they do, because it's in a, a bush environment and some of the shots get quite creative through through and around trees or under things. So, um, yeah, it's a very good course up there and they do a good job with it. It's a nice spot up there because we went up there, like, four years ago together mm. and you can stay the night you just pay certain fees yeah and Ga- they take care of you up there don't they yeah gary and tamara do an awesome job up there looking after the place and looking after um, everybody that comes along and putting on the shoots so they're really well you know really well set up and it's really appreciated by all the trad shooters that do get up to that shoot and and uh yeah 
I was saying to you before when you got home, I said, don't get mad at me, don't get mad. And I was saying to you how I thought it was crazy that you were going to just start designing your type of bows based on all the other bows you've made. Mm-hmm. Because you've got different names, like you've got the emu and um, the taipan and the perigee. What is Peregrine. it? Peregrine. I was thinking perigee and peach. Um, <laughs> and the peregrine. And I just thought, I was like, this is crazy. Like, you're, you're doing your own styles. You've taken everything you know from all these other designs, which you still make, mm. but you've started creating these other bows. And, like, I just thought it was crazy. And then you've had people message you and be like, oh, yeah, I really like that style. I really love a bow like that. And they've been just going out the door. And yeah. Like, it seems like such a crazy concept, and it's done so well so quickly. But you said there was one guy there today that knew... All your styles of bows that you've been making without mm. even touching them he just looked at them yeah there's one chap come up to me today and he knew all four of the ones that were on the rack by name uh, which i thought was pretty cool so but i name all my bows after australian animals that are kind of indicative of what the bow's personality is like so the peregrines you know violently fast um the emus are quite you know tall and straight but you know still shoot really fast like an emu would run and um, the goshawk itself was designed as a folding bow initially the first one of those that I ever built actually folds in half and I took that from a goshawk weaving through the trees they fold their wings up so I figured I'd sort of play on that theme and um, I've got a few other models coming that are uh, still in concept phase or, or uh, in design phase but I like to keep them all to you know that Australian theme and sort of design the bow around an animal's personality so comes up with some interesting ones we need to go back up there as a family we do it is a good spot they do it how often do they do that the shoot they did today how often do they do that one the shoot today was a once a year shoot it was Queensland state archery title so that's a one-off but the guys up there do run um, weekend fun days or local club shoots they have a club shoot on as well that's put on a few times through the year and if you get on the traditional archery australia facebook page you can keep an eye out for when the shoots are on at which different places so is there anything else you want to mention about today um i'd like to thank everybody that came up today and and did have a chat or look at any of the stuff that we had on display and all the guys that came through that um asked questions or just made nice comments on on my work so i really appreciate that and those those are the things that keep me going in doing what I'm doing and trying to make nice nice equipment for people to enjoy. You said there were a lot of people that were quite impressed with you, but it seems like you were just as impressed with everyone else. Yeah, I really enjoyed the feedback and everybody had, you know, kind things to say about my work, so that was much appreciated. What's the next shoot that you're aiming to go to? The next shoot I would like to get to would be uh, the, the next shoot that comes through Baramba. So um, I'd like to get out to there with the family and, and do a shoot weekend and have some stuff there to show and also make it a bit of a weekend thing where Perry and I can go through making some of the things that we actually make so people can sit and watch um, how we do what we do and get a bit of an idea of, of whether they want to have a crack at it for themselves. So I think that'll be a good a good opportunity to get to. Is it the um, Baramba Bow Hunters and Field Archers Association? Yeah, that's the one. What kind of shooting that do they do down there? So that course is a 3D course as well. Uh, the Baramba shoot, they hold a 3D course. It's a walk through the bush course. Completely different terrain set up to what's at Chevalon because of the locality is very different 
Um, but that's the style of shooting that they do is at 3D targets. How far is Moreva from Chevalon? Uh, it'd have to be an hour and a half between the two of them, maybe. It's interesting how much like the landscape changes. It is, yeah. You go <laughs> Just... from coastal rainforest through to you know almost um, outback uh, scrub. So that's just Australia, isn't it? That's it. Is it the one on in September? That would be the next one, I think. That's there. Yeah. Yeah. So September should be nice. It should start to warm up a little bit by then. It won't be too cold out that way. Um. Just having a quick look at their website. It looks like it's from the 29th of September to the 4th of October. So I don't know how that runs. Oh, there you go. Tuesday, the registration. Um, target field hunter, hunter slash field. Um, target animals and arrow rounds. Cool. Hmm. So we're aiming to get down there. So you think it'll be quite similar to ship, like how it's run? Yeah, it'll Island. be very similar. It'll be a two-day shoot. Uh, the guys will go out in the first morning and shoot there their rounds and then they'll come in um and it's always an interesting afternoon can anyone go up there or do you have to be part of a club i think being part of a traditional archery australia federation itself is important and then also being a member of a taa club what kind of bows are they taking up there just anything traditional so the bows today varied from modern modern um, glass fiber bows in recurves, longbows, hybrids between the two reflex deflex longbows, to primitives. They have primitive division for the guys that want to shoot the self bows, or um, if guys do have horn bows, they're also very welcome to shoot in primitive division. But it, there's a good mix of people up there with a lot of different styles of bows that get shot. Is there anything else you want to say about today? I know I've asked that already. <laughs> no, it was just a really good day to be up there and I very much enjoyed it. I hope everybody else did and thanks for coming to have a look at all the stuff. Hopefully we'll get to a few more shoots now the kids are getting a bit older. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Well, we'll wrap it up for today. Um, <clears throat> hopefully on the next episode we can get Perry in mm-hmm. and we can talk about arrows, all sorts of arrows. Yeah, I'd like to start introducing some guest speakers onto the show as well and, and get a bit of an idea on their specialties and... Perry's always been one a big advocate on arrows, uh, the underdog in the competition between arrows and bows. So bows always get the, the the spotlight, but the important part is the arrow. So we'll get Perry's perspective on it and probably talk a little bit of hunting and stuff as well. And I don't think we ever talk to Perry without learning something. That's right. Very, very knowledgeable individual. So it'll be a good chat. If you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to jump over to Facebook and either pop a comment there or send a private message yeah when we get the link for this this podcast up on the facebook page just whack a comment if you have a question in that thread and we'll try and answer it any suggestions or constructive criticism too yeah for sure Alrighty, thanks guys awesome thanks everyone cheers see you next time